We are in a series where we're taking a look each week at a hard saying of Jesus. Uh, The first week, we looked at the most confusing story Jesus ever told. Last week, we took a look at the worst sermon Jesus ever preached. And this morning, we're going to look at the most unexpected command Jesus ever gave. And I want to Take a look at it right off the bat here. Luke 14, 26. Jesus said this to the crowd. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It seems here like Jesus is telling his disciples that they should be a hater. Now, the term hater has its own meaning in our society today. Maybe you've come across this term, hater. Haters are people, I looked it up online at Urban Dictionary. A hater is a person who simply cannot be happy for someone else. A hater is someone who cannot enjoy someone else's success. A hater is someone who would rather than being happy, they would rather make a point of exposing a flaw in that person. They wanna, their life's purpose is to knock other people down a notch. That's a hater. We also talk about haters on social media as people who, this is a whole other word that needs to be defined, who will troll on social media. And trolling is simply somebody who goes around Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and leaves nasty, mean, hurtful, snide, sarcastic comments just for the purpose of stealing someone's joy just a little bit. These are haters. And there's a whole uh, sort of uh, language that's been evolved around them. And, and people have learned that you just, there's always going to be haters. And so there's this popular phrase in pop culture right now called haters gonna hate. Anybody heard that? Haters gonna hate. And there's these funny memes. I, I got one meme for you to see that you'll see sometimes online. It's this cat that's just kind of walking very happily along saying, haters gonna hate. Like, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do and haters are gonna hate. In Luke chapter 14, it, it seems like Jesus is saying, if you're not a hater, you're not with me. If you're not a hater, you can't follow me. What is he actually saying here? And we're going to see that he's actually saying that there's three things, three things we need, three things it takes to be a hater. The first one is new priorities. The second one is cross identity. And the third one is Jesus centrality, new priorities, a cross identity, and Jesus centrality. Let's start with new priorities. Jesus is saying here, if you're going to follow me, you have to have new priorities. Let's look again at that verse in its context, beginning in verse 25. It says in Luke 14, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them. So there's a huge crowd of people following Jesus everywhere because of the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he's doing. And they're thinking, this is the Messiah. This is the King. This guy is multiplying food. This guy's going to feed us. He's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to restore Israel. Like they're all super excited. And so with this excited crowd following Jesus, he turns on his heels and he looks at him and he says, if anyone's going to follow me and come after me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what is Jesus saying here? First off, we know what he's not saying, don't we? Because everywhere else, Jesus' teachings are things like this. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said the second great command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, as he was dying on the cross, demonstrated great concern and care for his earthly mother. He said to John, John, this is now your mom. And mom, this is now your son. 
He's saying, you take care of my mother. So we see in Jesus' teachings and we see in his actions that he can't be saying that we should literally hate our family. In fact, there's an interesting passage, we're not going to look at it, but in Mark chapter 7, he rebukes some religious people because they're not taking care of their aging parents out of what they are describing to be religious obligation. So saying, I can't care for my parents because I'm doing things for God. And Jesus rebukes them for that and says, that's the wrong heart. So the overwhelming evidence of Jesus' teaching is that we're supposed to love deeply our family our neighbors, pray for our enemies. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, if you were to look at the word hate here, when he says you have to hate your father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, the word hate here in the Greek actually is best translated loveless. Not loveless, like one word, but two words, love less. That you need to love them less in such a dramatic way, the gap between your love for me and your love for even the best things in your life should be so dramatic that by comparison, it could seem like it's hate, although it's not hate. Friday night, I stood up at one of my friend's weddings, and, and just yesterday, we had a wedding right here. Rob and Jessica, now Rob and Jessica Lyatka, we had their wedding here yesterday. And I've done a lot of, uh, I've officiated a lot of weddings. I've done premarital counseling. And uh, never have I heard a, husband or a wife, a groom and a bride say to each other, hey, after we get married, you got to hate everyone else, right? So the bride doesn't usually say to the groom, after we get married, you have to hate every other woman in the world. You got to hate them. And the groom doesn't say to the bride, after we get married, you have to hate every other man in the world. And if someone tells you that, that's not, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. Don't, don't marry that person. And uh, what they're, they don't say that, but when a groom and a bride stand together and make these vows and look at each other and pledge each other's life, they're not saying you've got to hate every other woman or you've got to hate every other man, but what they're saying is by comparison, in fact, there should be no comparison. Isn't that really what the bride is saying to the groom and the groom is saying to the bride? I don't want to be number one on your list of top 10 girls. And the groom is looking at the bride not saying, I, I want to be number one on the top 10 list of your guys. They're saying this, I want my own list. Okay, I want my own list. And that's really what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, I'm on my own list. It's not me, and then, and then there's all these competitive things that you have love for and that you prioritize in your life. Jesus is saying, I should be so far out in front of them in love and priority that by comparison, it, it could seem like it's hate, although he's not telling us to hate here. Now, Jesus, really, when he does this, he targets, he couldn't have said something, he couldn't have chosen something more shocking to that culture back then than when he talked about the family. Family was the highest value in the culture. Family was the central social institution of biblical times. Loyalty to one's family was the most important value that someone could have had in that culture. As a general rule, in biblical times and in this Middle Eastern culture where Jesus was, a person's identity and worth was determined more by his or her contribution to the family than by his or her individual achievement. Now, that's different in America, isn't it? It's different. We, we are defined by our individual achievement, but not in this culture. Your, you were value, your value and your worth were determined by how you could contribute to the family. Sons would grow up under the care of their fathers, learning the trade of their dads. It was very unusual. So when Jesus asked these fishermen to come and follow him and to leave their trade, that's a bigger deal than you and I think. I mean, people in this society change jobs and, and, and careers all the time, but not back then. If your dad fished, 
you were going to fish the rest of your life. That's why Jesus was a carpenter or a stone worker, because that's what Joseph was. So sons learned the trades that their dads did, and then they worked with him, and then they took over that work when their dads passed on. Everywhere men went in that culture, they were known as their first name, but then it was son of their dad's first name. So Jesus, son of Joseph. That's actually why we have last names today like Williamson and Thompson and Richardson because over time it's changed from son of William to Williamson, son of Tom to Thompson. And so if we had still done that today, we would have been, I would have been Thompson, David Thompson, son of Tom, not David Hurtwick. Married sons also would build on to the existing house of their parents. They wouldn't go get their own place to live. How many of you are glad that that's not still something that we do in our society? They moved out, and they move out here, but back then they didn't. They just built on an addition. Parents, unmarried children, and a married son and spouse would all often live under the same roof. So I'm saying all that to help you realize family was actually a greater value in that culture than it is in our own. And by our own, I just kind of mean this Western American culture. So when Jesus said you have to hate your family, he basically was saying you have to hate the, the number one value that your culture holds. Nothing else can be first place, not even the good things. Now, for us today, what, is, what are some of our culture's highest values? I mean, yes, we still do value family. It's been redefined and it's being redefined. But what does our culture really value? I, I wrote down a few things that I think our culture values. I think one of the greatest values that our culture holds so dear and builds its, 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 all, of its, um, all of its strength and energy around is what I would call self-actualization, that you become the best possible version of yourself, that you be true to who you are, right? And if anybody tries to get in the way of who you think you should be, then you gotta ignore them and you gotta overcome this. I mean, that, that is one of the greatest values in our culture is that the individual self being the truest and most fully realized version of yourself be true to who you are and how you feel about yourself regardless of what that means. Another one of our culture's highest values is what I would call personalized truth that everybody gets to decide for themselves what is true, personalized truth. Another value is status in society, how do other people see you, the accumulation of wealth, uh, having power and influence, being able to uh, get pleasure in different ways at, in, in, in any time that you want. These are all values. So Jesus is basically saying here, if we want to hear it in our ears today, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you have to love those things so dramatically less that by comparison to your love and devotion to Jesus, it can appear to be hate. So Jesus is saying, new priorities. I am the top priority. And then Jesus even goes on to say, if you're gonna follow me, not only do you have to hate your father, your mothers, your brothers, your sisters, but you gotta hate even your own life. Is there anything more counterintuitive to us hating our own lives? Not looking out for ourselves, not looking out for number one. I have three little girls, and one of, any of you who have children, you've learned this. There's many things you need to teach your kids, right? Many lessons you want to teach them, many skills you hope that they'll learn. You don't have to teach them how to be selfish, do you? Doesn't, you don't have to teach them. They're just, that's just who we are. We're born in that nature, looking out for ourselves, thinking about ourselves, wanting our way. I remember, in, I remember 2003, 14 years ago, hearing about this new website called MySpace. Now I was like trying to wrap my mind around. I'm like, what is MySpace? What is this thing? And people were like, everybody gets their own page. 
I'm like, what? I can have my own page and you can have your own page. And I just thought it was like the wildest thing in the world. And sure enough, I started to look around my space. I'm like, people have their own pages. Like you got your own little corner now on the internet that belongs to you where you can express yourself and you can post your opinion and you can post your pictures and you can rank your friends and you can deny people friendship and you can accept people's friendship. And I just thought, this is crazy. Now, I never would have dreamed that 13 years later. And now how many of you have multiple individual expressions of yourself? online. Hopefully not MySpace anymore. Catch up, by the way, if you're still on MySpace. <laughs> Hopefully not MySpace anymore, but Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and all these LinkedIn and all these different ways to express who you are as an individual. See, we're, we're very much focused on ourselves, and we end up with this sort of world of social media that we're all living in, kind of being our own public relation person always spinning out the best version of ourselves with every post, with every picture. No one puts bad pictures of themselves up online, right? This is the way it is. We're, we're looking out for ourselves. And Jesus comes along and says, you gotta, deny, you gotta hate your own life. This is how he says it in other places in Luke. You have to deny yourself. Deny yourself. We wanna serve ourselves. We wanna look out for ourselves. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, if you wanna follow me, hate your own life. And no matter what you think of what Jesus has said up until this point, one thing should be very clear. There is no such thing as a casual follower of Jesus. I mean, this is evident in this text. There's no such thing as a casual, part-time, I'm kind of in, I'm kind of out, I'm sitting on the fence, follower of Jesus. Jesus is saying you're in or you're out. There's no casualness about this. In other words, there's no middle ground. My, my girls are getting to the age now where they're somewhat interested in the sports that I watch. They won't necessarily watch with me, but they like to know who I'm rooting for. And so anytime I'm watching a, a soccer match or a baseball game, they'll run into the room and they'll say, who do you want to win? Who, who are you rooting for? And they know some of my favorite teams. And last weekend, the Yankees and the Red Sox are playing, and I'm a Yankee fan. And so they came in, and they said, they said, NYY, and they realized that's New York Yankees. And then they saw BOS, and they said, what's that? I said, that's Boston, Boston Red Sox. They said, well, who are you rooting for? I said, I always root for the Yankees. I'm rooting for the Yankees. And then they asked a great question. They said, well, what if the Yankees aren't playing? Then who do you root for? And my first answer was, then I don't really care. I mean, if the Yankees aren't playing, I don't really care. But then I caught myself, and I said, with one exception. If Boston is playing, I'm rooting for the other team. Always. Always. Because as a Yankee fan, when it comes to the Red Sox, there's no middle grounds. All right? And, 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 and in this text, Jesus is, is saying, hey, if you really understand who I am, if you really get who I am and get what I'm asking, the last thing it should inspire is a ho-hum response in your heart. And if that's been your experience with Jesus, it's kind of like, ah, I could take it or leave it. There's some things I like about him. I'm not really sure. I'll follow him on Sundays, but the rest of the week I'll follow and serve myself. Then you actually don't understand who he is, what he's done for you, and what he's asking from you in response. He, all through the gospels, anybody who got who Jesus was, there was only two responses. They either fell on their face, worshiped him and followed him, or they wanted to kill him. Those are the only two responses to people who really saw Jesus for who he was. They worshiped him or they wanted to kill him. There's no such thing as a part-time follower of Jesus. If you think you can follow Jesus on your schedule, on your time, if you think you can fit him into your day planner and work him into your agenda, you're following someone else. You're not following Jesus. 
Jesus involves hating the things that this culture values most, loving them less in such a way and even your own life. Charles Spurgeon, the famous uh, English preacher, said, he who does not long to know more of Christ knows nothing of him yet. He or she who does not have a longing to know more of Christ doesn't know anything about him yet. If you think you can follow Jesus on your terms and your schedule, then you probably don't understand who Jesus is. So, what does it mean to be a hater? What's Jesus saying here? What's, it's new priorities. Three, you, you choose Jesus over everything and everyone else. You, don't, you die to yourself. You, you don't sit on the fence. That's what it means, right? New priorities. Now, I could stop the sermon right here, and it's possible that some of you would leave and not realize that what I've just said is not actually alone the message of Christianity. What I've just said is not all that it means to follow Jesus. Some of you think, well, I've, that's everything it means to be a Christian is just deny yourself, work hard, try harder, don't sit on the fence, do better. But there's a problem. You and I can't save ourselves. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't grow ourselves by just trying harder and giving more efforts, no matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter. Paul wrote the book of Galatians to the church to say, hey, what was begun by the Spirit will not be brought to completion by your flesh. You can't work yourself into being a hater. You can't earn that. You can't get yourself there. You can't watch your way there. So how is it possible? Let's keep going. You'll never have new priorities unless, secondly, you have a cross identity. Let's keep reading what Jesus says, picking up in verse 27. We're going to read through verse 33. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he gives two examples of counting the cost of following Jesus. He, talk, he gives two stories here. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, he's talking about construction, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Do you remember when they were trying to build the first stage of destiny? And there were people at some point who began to mock them because they're like, you started this thing and you don't have the money and the ability to finish this thing. And we wondered, wasn't there a period of time where we wondered, is we just going to have a shell in the middle of our city forever? Are they ever going to do anything with that? That's what Jesus is saying here. You got to count the cost. Verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in the war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other one is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He surrenders because he knows he can't win. Verse 33, here's the the summary verse. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross cannot follow me. Now, in our culture today, the cross has become really a symbol of beauty. I mean, it's, it's, it's in our sanctuary. Uh, some of you probably have a cross on a necklace hanging around your neck right now. It's not weird for us to see artwork about the cross, to have crosses in our homes. But listen, when Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14, this was before he went to the cross. In that culture, the cross was not, there was nothing beautiful about the cross. Nobody would have hung a cross on the wall in their home back then or hung a cross around their neck because the cross was the most inhumane form of execution. 
It was a terrible, terrible form of execution that was reserved only for the worst type of criminals. It was such a terrible form of execution that even though the Romans were the ones that carried out the execution, they had a law that prevented Romans from enduring that form of execution. It was only for people, for, for people who weren't Romans. And so this is a terrible form of execution. And Jesus, I can't imagine people are following Jesus that day, super excited, super pumped, and he starts talking to them. And all of a sudden, I just picture half the crowd stopping in their tracks when he says, by the way, if you want to follow me, you've got to bear your own cross. You've got to pick up a cross. Jesus says it other way, in other places, you've got to take up your cross. So what is he saying? The cross simply represents any hardship that you encounter while you're doing the will of God. Anybody ever encounter a hardship while they're doing the will of God? That's what the cross is. The cross is enduring any hardship while you're doing the will of God. And to bear it or to take it up, as Jesus says elsewhere in the book of Luke, it means to take it up with joy and to count it an honor. So let's put those together. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to consider it an honor when you encounter hardship doing the will of God. How hard is that? How difficult is that? Some of us are like, I can, grip my, I, can, I can grip my teeth and kind of bear down, and I can encounter hardship when I'm doing God's will. But Jesus says, you should consider it an honor when you are. You should consider it joy to take up your cross. In other words, Jesus is saying, prioritize God's will and his ways over all other things and find your identity as a cross bearer. Be a cross bearer, a cross identity, and consider the cost of it all. Jesus is challenging us here to examine where do you get your sense of identity from? He says, if you're going to follow me, your identity is always going to be found in the cross of what I did on the cross, but also now my call to you to take up your cross and follow after me. Isn't it true in life that our identity, how we perceive ourselves, who we think we are, it has a way of informing and determining our priorities, right? Who I think I am, where I am in life has a way of determining what matters to me most. Let me give you some examples. When you're a child, what are your priorities? Well, as a kid, your priorities are playing, learning your one, two, threes and your ABCs and learning how to get along with other kids and how to tie your shoes and, and how to stop wetting your bed, right? And when you're, when you're a teenager, now your identity has changed and your priorities change. When you're a teenager, you're trying to get a sense of who you are. You're trying to do well enough in school to take the next step trying to learn how to talk to the opposite sex without throwing up in your own mouth, right? These are the things that you're trying to do when you're a teenager. When you're a college student, what am I going to do with my life? Now, as a college student, you have a new priority of you have to self-motivate yourself to do your schoolwork. When I became a college student, my first week there, all of a sudden, I had a new priority. Learn how to do laundry. I didn't know how to do laundry, right? Your identity changes, your priorities change. Then you get a job, and now you're an employee, and your, pri- your priorities are to be a good worker, to fit in with the team, to learn how to be productive, to climb the ladder. You get married, you're husband and wife, and now you have the priorities of being a good spouse, taking responsibility and care for another human being, sharing the television remote, right? Communicating. And then you become a mom or a dad, and now your priorities are providing for your children, setting a good example, being a good parent, not losing your mind while you're raising them. So your identity determines your priorities. And Jesus is saying here, you're never going to have new priorities if you don't first have a change in your identity. When you see yourself as a cross bearer, when you see yourself following after me, joyfully taking up the cross and doing my will, even when you encounter hardships, then that radically changes your priorities in those moments. Instead of trying to get yourself out of difficult hardship as quickly as possible, 
you find the grace to actually lean into it. You find the grace to actually ask questions like, God, how can you grow me and change me and shape me and form me? You know that nothing in life changes in you really without some hardship, right? Look back on your life. When were the greatest moments of growth for you? My guess would be they're almost always attached to a moment of hardship. That's just how we grow. That's how we learn. And so we need to have a new identity. Well, how do you know what you're building your identity on? And I was thinking about this this week. I was driving around, and I came up with a little saying that I think will help us. I think you know what you're building your identity on, where you're, where you're getting your sense of self from, simply if you can answer this question. What do you look to? What do you look to for, your way, for a way in, for a way out, and for a way through? Now, I'm going to explain all that, but I'll say it one more time. Where do you look to get in, to get out, and to get through? The first one I want to talk to you about, where do you look to get in, to get your way in? And when I talk about getting our way in, all through life, we work and we do certain things to get inside of certain things, whether it's inside of the perfect job, inside of the perfect relationship. We don't like being on the outside. We work really hard to get in on things. One of my favorite shows was The Office, and there's the, the main character in The Office, his name was Michael Scott. He's kind of a bit of a buffoon of a boss, and there was one scene where he was in a hotel room with some guys who were having a good laugh about an inside joke, and he started laughing with them, even though he didn't know the joke, and they explained to him, oh, Michael, sorry, that's, it, it's just an inside joke. You wouldn't really get it, and then he, he said this. He said, I love inside jokes. I'd love to be a part of one someday. <laughs> And we laughed, but we also kind of cringed because you, you feel for him. And it's like, this guy just wants to be on the inside of a joke. He just wants to be in the know. He doesn't want to be an outsider. Well, where in your life do you look as your way in? What's the thing that you think is going to get you inside, that's going to help you belong, that's going to bring you, this is the key word, that's going to bring you significance? For some people, their way in is their physique. Not me, obviously, but for some people, it's their physique. And so they spend a lot of time, and that's fine. I mean, working out is healthy. Eating healthy is gross, but it's good for you. I mean, those are, those are things that, that we all should do. However, we got to look out not for bad things, but we got to look out even for the good things in our lives. Because remember when Jesus said, hate your family, he's not saying family's a bad thing. The reason why he had to pick on family was because he knew family was the greatest risk in the heart of those people because it was a good thing. In fact, it was the best thing according to that culture. So some people work out and eat very healthy. That's a good thing to do, but what if it just becomes your way in? That's how you get, that's how you get inside of something that you feel like you're on the outside of. For some people, it's a relationship. When the perfect relationship comes along, then they're going to be on the inside of, of a relationship that's going to bring them significance. For some people, it's a career, but whatever it is, we hate feeling like we're on the outside. You ever, you ever have that feeling when you walk into a room and everybody's laughing, having a good time, and then you walk in and that's all, all of a sudden they stop? Just me? Does that ever happen? And then you feel like, uh, are they talking about me? Like, what's, you don't want to be on the outside. And so we, bait, we look around this world and we look at all the different things, status and wealth and career and pleasure and control and relationship and family and health, and we say, that's my way in. For, other of us, for others of us, we look and we say, that's my way out. So the first one is significance, but the second one is salvation. That's my way out. That's the ticket out. 
I was listening to a podcast recently by Malcolm Gladwell where he was talking about kids in impoverished communities in Los Angeles and how there's very specific efforts being made to find uh, really highly educated, special intelligent, um, of a special level of intelligence, kids who are, are steeped in incredible poverty. And when they find them, they work hard with them because they say, this is your ticket out. You're gonna be stuck in this world forever. Your only ticket out. And then for other, for other people, their ticket out of poverty is their athleticism. And so they say to foot, young football players, young basketball players, this is your ticket out. But it's not just dramatic ways out from poverty to being a multimillionaire. For some of you, it's just a way out of your past. It's a way out of the socioeconomic standing that you grew up in, and you're just determined to find a way out. You're not going to ever wonder where your next meal is going to come from. You're never going to miss a payment on this, and so this is going to be your way out. And you say with your, in your heart, if I only had that thing, then, I, then life would be wonderful and great. So where are you looking to get out? And then the last one here, get in, get out. And then for some people, it's what, where do you look just to get through, just to get through the day? And let's be honest, most of us probably live more there. It's not about significance. It's not so much about salvation. It's about survival. <laughs> How am I going to get through another day? How am I going to get through another week? And where do you turn for that? People turn to all sorts of things to distract themselves from reality, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's certain types of pleasure, whether it's escaping through certain forms of entertainment, what, whatever it is to dull your senses, you're just trying to get through. And why, do I, why am I spending so much time on this? Because whatever that is, wherever you look for your way in, wherever you look for your way out, and wherever you look for your way through, it's going to become your identity. That's going to become who you are. And Jesus teaches us this actually a couple chapters later when he says, whoever looks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now that's another hard saying. What is Jesus saying there? Well, the Greek word for life there is not bios. So Jesus is not talking about your physical life. He's not talking about losing and gaining your physical life. The Greek word for life there is psyche. And psyche simply means it's your sense of self, knowing who you are. So Jesus is saying, if you try to define yourself in other ways, you're actually going to lose your sense of self. But if you're willing to lay down and hate your own self and follow me, you're going to find that in me, in me, you're going to become who you were meant to be. Apart from Christ, we're just scrambling to piece ourselves together like a broken puzzle that's missing many, many pieces. But in Christ, he's building us up. He's making us whole. And if you build your identity on temporary things, even good things, especially good things, you'll lose it all. You'll lose your sense of self. But if you build your identity on Christ, then your very sense of self and worth and value is rooted in his unchanging love and his unmerited work on your behalf. Jesus went to the cross, and there's three things that he did at the cross that we need to remember. He absorbed God's wrath, he secured your welcome, and he, sec- and he also established your worth. That's what Jesus did. Three simple things. If, if anybody ever asked you, what did Jesus do on the cross? He absorbed God's holy wrath. God's a holy God, and when he made a promise to punish sin, he's a fair judge. He's going to, he's going to carry it out. So he absorbed God's wrath in our place. He secured God's welcome for you which means he didn't just get you off the hook, he got you in. All our lives were trying to get in, Jesus got us in. All our lives were trying to get out, 
Jesus saved us. He got us out. All our lives we're trying to get through. Jesus gets you through anything because he has established your worth. So how do we embrace this cross identity? And this is our last point. We won't have new priorities without a cross identity, and we will never have a cross identity without what I'm calling this morning Jesus centrality. Jesus at the center of it all. We read this text in Luke 14, and it wouldn't be unfair for us to go and wonder, how can Jesus ask this of us? Hate the things that I value most? Hate the things that my culture values most? Hate even my own life? Pick up a cross? Consider the cost that is... Lay down all things? How can Jesus even ask for these things? Well, in the very next chapter, Luke chapter 15, which is one of the most well-known chapters in the Gospels, Jesus tells three stories about three lost items. I'm not going to go through it, but the first story is about a lost sheep. There's a hundred sheep, one's lost. The shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one. The second story, there's a lost coin. A woman has 10 valuable coins. One goes missing. She turns the whole house upside down and she finds that missing coin and then she throws a party for her neighbors once she finds that coin. And then the third story, which is maybe Jesus' most famous story, either this or probably the Samaritan. Yeah, the good Samaritan. But the story of the prodigal son or the lost sons, now we go from a lost sheep to a lost coin to a lost son. Actually, two lost sons. But what's the thread through all of those three stories? The thread of all of those three stories is a couple things. One of them is the value of one. The value of one. You might feel alone in a crowd. You might feel like, how valuable am I by myself to God? And I would say, read Luke 15. He left the 99 for you. He turned the house upside down to find you. And he ran to you and welcomed you home, restoring you and leading you into repentance. We have to understand that. I know I've said it before, but the son did not come home with the heart of repentance. He came home determined to buy his way back in. I'm going to get a job in town. I'm going to earn my way back in. He did not come back with the heart of repentance. He came back determined to buy his way back in. And when the father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him and tackled him and fell to the ground, then the heart of repentance was birthed in the heart of the son. And he began to believe I can be restored to who I was before. So there's the value of one. But the other thing that we see in those three stories is God is the protagonist. He is the pursuer of lost things and lost people. What a mistake to think we've been pursuing God our whole lives. It may feel that way. It may seem that way. But the truth is, according to scriptures, nobody comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. The Father's Spirit has been drawing you and pursuing you. And when it comes to your identity, here's, let me just say this. Everyone centers their life around something, right? We were talking about this. Everybody has an identity. But here's what everybody's identity ends up being. It's whatever they're pursuing, Whatever they're pursuing is their identity, whether it's a person or a thing. But what is different for the Christian? What's different for the Christian is that our identity is not, is not rooted in our pursuit of God. Our identity is rooted in God's pursuit of us. God pursued you. And that's a very different sort of source for identity and, and sense of who you are. The gospel, the gospel which tells us that you and I are more sinful and lost and evil than we ever thought at first, but we're more loved and rescued and saved than we ever hoped at first. Both are true. On one hand, 
You're more sinful than you'd ever dare believe. But on the other hand, because of Jesus, you're more loved than you would ever dream or you would ever hope. This is our new centrality. Jesus' work on the cross. This is the center of our lives. New priorities flowing out of a cross identity, flowing out of a Jesus centrality. All right, here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to give you a few case studies on what this looks like, okay? A few quick examples of of how this works in our lives. I'm going to give you some bad ones, and then I'm going to give you a good one. All right, so here's the first one. Let's put up the word. Some people, the center of their life is acceptance. For some people, acceptance is what they've centered their entire life around, right? They want to be accepted. They want to be approved. They want to be on the inside. They want to be popular. They want to have friends. They want people to love them and adore them. And let's just, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but there's not a single person that doesn't deal with this on some level, right? Some people more than others, but we all want to be accepted. Well, when your center of your life is acceptance, then you begin to identify yourself as either popular or unpopular, in or out, single or dating, unmarried or married, a unhealthy relationship, a healthy relationship. And, and that becomes your very identity. You don't know who you are apart from that because the center of your heart is acceptance. So if your center is acceptance, your identity becomes popular or unpopular. And here, here's how it changes your priorities. You will now do whatever it takes to be accepted and loved. Anything. You'll compromise. You'll do anything. You'll change who you are. You'll be a chameleon. You'll become whoever you think that person wants you to be. You have no sense of who you are. Why? Because remember, priorities flow out of your identity, which always flows out of your centrality. Really, centrality means who you worship, who you adore. Now, how do you know if this is you? Here's some lies you might believe, that you're better, you're worth more when you're with someone than when you're not with someone. You'd rather be with anyone than risk being alone, and so... Uh, you feel more valuable in a relationship. Your life centers around another person. Your sense of okayness is caught up in them or in, the, or in the idea of them. Sometimes it's not even a person. It's the idea of a person that you've wrapped your heart around. You could be married to somebody and you could have an idea of who they should be and that's what you actually love and adore and crave the most. So these, these, this is how it works ourselves out in our lives. Now, what does the gospel say? The gospel says that because Jesus was abandoned and rejected in your place, you can be accepted and approved by the Father. Not on the basis of your work, but on the basis of his work. So how do, what do we do? We need to preach that to our hearts daily. Every morning, wake up. God, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you became my punishment so that I could be your goodness. Thank you that you were abandoned and rejected so that I could be accepted and approved. All right, let's go to the next example. For some people, what they worship and adore is success. And so if what you worship and adore is success, then your identity becomes you're either a winner or you're a loser. You're either making money or losing money. You're either right or you're wrong. And how does it inform your priorities? Well, if what you worship most is success, then here's your priority. Do whatever it takes to win. Anything. I was listening to another podcast recently about Wilt Chamberlain, famous basketball player, scored 100 points in the game one time, and another famous basketball player named Rick Barry. Any of you remember Rick Barry, Wilt Chamberlain? Um, I didn't get to see them play live, but I've, I've heard about them. Who, what, Rick Barry was known for one very unusual thing. Does anybody remember what he was known for? Rick Barry shot his free throws, what we term granny style. Do you know what granny style is? You grab the, you know, in basketball, you're supposed to shoot overhand and flick your wrist. Well, granny style is you grab the ball down here between your knees and you flick it up. 
Rick Barry was one of the greatest free throw shooters in the history of the NBA. But he shot it in such a way that he would get made fun of and mocked at first. But once everybody realized it works, they stopped making fun of him. Now, Wilt Chamberlain is the opposite case study because Wilt Chamberlain, despite being one of the most dominant basketball players, if not the most dominant basketball player in the history of the NBA, he was a terrible free throw shooter. I mean, a terrible free throw shooter. And one year he switched, do you remember this? One year he switched to granny style, Wilt Chamberlain. And he had the best free throw shooting year of his life. And guess what he did the next year? He switched back. Now, why? Because he had a different centrality than Rick Barry did. Rick Barry's centrality, I listened to him talk in an interview. He might be the most competitive person I've ever heard speak. He got so angry when he thought that it would be possible that people wouldn't shoot this way because of how it looks. He just said, I don't understand it. If it works, if it helps you win, then you're a total fool. I have no respect for you because all that matters, and he said this, all that matters is winning. Now, what mattered to Wilt Chamberlain more than winning? Image, his appearance, the cool man factor, how he, now you look at both of them and you say, you, you're, you immediately probably gravitate to one more than the other. Some of you are like, I totally agree with Rick Barry. Some of you are like, I get, I get it. I would have done like Will Chamberlain. Who's going to shoot granny shots as a professional basketball player because of how you're wired? But I'm saying all this to say every single person has something at the center of their heart. And if it's success, you'll do whatever it takes to win, even shoot granny shots. How do you know if this is you? Let me give you some examples. You have an excuse every time you lose. You look down on people who lose. You distance yourself from losers. You compete to the point of ruining relationships. (laughs) You can't rest until you win an argument. You stay up at night thinking about how you should have finished that argument differently. And how if you you just were a quicker thinker, you had the perfect finishing line, but you couldn't come up with it in time because you want to... What does the gospel say? The gospel says that Jesus hung on the cross is looked like an ultimate loser. He died the shameful death of a criminal. He hung on the cross as a total loser. He bore our sins, though he never sinned, so that what? So that his rightness could be yours. And if you trust in Jesus, his righteousness is yours. You don't have to prove yourself to be right in a stupid little argument. You got the righteousness of Jesus Christ all over you. Why are you still clamoring for this little bit of rightness when the righteousness of God has been given to you. See how the gospel counters these things in our lives. Uh, here, let me give you a couple more. Uh, sup- another thing that people build their lives on is superiority, knowing that I'm better, whether it's my religion, my race, my lifestyle. If, you, if the center of your life is superiority, then your identity is you're either superior to them, you're better than them, or you're worse than them. And your priorities become, I'll do whatever it takes to be right or look right, appear right, seem right. How do you know if this is you? Because you can use anything to differentiate yourself between who you are and who everyone else is. You can draw a line between the cool people in the room and the uncool people in the room, the normal people and the not normal, the people who are like you and the people who are not like you. You take an unusual amount of pride in things that are yours through no effort of your own, like your race, where you live, how wealthy your family is, where you grew up, what type of church you go to. You build your identity on all sorts of things that separate you from those people. The cross says this, you don't need to leverage a single thing to make yourself feel superior to others because your value and worth have been determined by the price of the very life and death of the Son of God. Let me give you, let me give you another bad one, which is really relevant to us this morning, and then we'll close with a good one. Another bad one is religion. Some people build their lives around religion and religious performance, and their identity becomes they're either good enough or they're not good enough. 
They're either feeling really spiritual today or they're feeling really guilty today. They've impressed God a lot today or they're really thinking God is disappointed with them. And here's what your priority becomes if you build your life on religion and religious performance. You'll do whatever it takes to save yourself, whatever it takes to justify yourself. How do you know if this is you? You feel like God is mostly disappointed with you. You feel a lot more loved and accepted by God when you have had a great experience at a service or a retreat. You look down on so-called weaker Christians. Your relationship with Jesus is an obligation and not a joy. You're not resting in his work. You're trying to rest in your own. And you know what the cross says to you? Those of you that are slaves to religion and performance and morality and proving yourself, you can't accomplish it. Jesus accomplished it for you. You can't add to what Jesus has done for you. You can only respond you cannot accomplish what, when we try to save ourselves, even through our own good efforts, is us basically rejecting the cross and saying, what Jesus did was only halfway done. I'm going to do the rest. What Jesus did was 95% done. Watch me, God. I'm going to finish it. I'm going to do the next 5%. And God is saying, everything that you need has been provided for you in my son. It's not about what you can achieve. It's about your willingness to receive Christ's work on your behalf. And so what's the right centrality? The right centrality, lastly, is this, Jesus. His life and his work on your behalf. If your center of your life is Jesus, then here's your identity. I'm sinful beyond belief, but I'm loved beyond hope because of Jesus. And here's your priorities. I will hate all else. I will love less, even the best things in my life. The things that I love the most, my, my lifestyle, my, my children, my home, my ability to go places and do things, my control, my influence, my career, how respected I am at work, the way I look in the mirror, I will so dramatically love those things less because my heart has been captured by someone much more beautiful than those things. Jesus, we follow and serve the one who rescued us. You know, Jesus didn't ask us to do something that he didn't also do. Do you know that Jesus hated his own life? According to what he taught us here, he hated his own life all the way to the cross. He allowed, he laid his life down and went to the cross. Christianity is the only faith that central event is the humiliation of its own God. Jesus did that for us. So let Jesus, let his life, let his death, let his resurrection, let the beauty of who he is, let it be your center let it give you a new identity and let it rearrange the very priorities of your life. That's what it means to be a hater. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let's pray together this morning.